every good story has conflict. You ever notice that? Every good story has conflict. Think about it. Moby Dick, how many of y'all are familiar with that book? Ever read that book? Popular book, right? In this story, the conflict is between who? It's between Ahab, that's right, and the whale, Moby Dick. Remember the whale destroyed Ahab's ship and bit off his leg, and Ahab seeks revenge. In Call of the Wild, how many of y'all have read that? It's another popular book, right? A classic. Remember in this story, you have conflict surrounding a sled dog named Buck. And in this story, Buck comes, against, comes up against all kinds of, of opposition and conflict, right? Between uh, cruel humans and mean dogs and the extreme conditions of the Yukon in Canada. In The Hobbit is now a popular movie, but kids, it was a book before it was a movie, for those of y'all that don't know that. And in this story, you have conflict between the dwarves and the dragon named Smog, who has driven them from their home. So you see, in each of these stories, classic stories, there is conflict. And the conflict in each of these stories is what makes these stories so good. I mean, I can't even think of a good story that is free from conflict, can you? Sometimes the conflict is between the protagonist and the antagonist, the good guy and the bad guy. Other times the conflict is within man, the conflict is within. Other times the conflict is between man and nature. But no matter the situation, every good story has Conflict, And the same is true with the story of Jesus. The life of Jesus, the story of his earthly ministry, is a story that is jam-packed with conflict. Remember, we talked about this around Christmas time when we looked at Matthew's Christmas story. Remember, around the time of Jesus' birth, King Herod wanted to put Jesus to death. Remember, he saw him as being a potential threat to his rule and to his kingdom and dynasty. So he sought to put him to death. And we see early on that Jesus experienced conflict at the very beginning of his earthly ministry. And as we've gone through this book, the book of John, we have seen that this conflict happens throughout Jesus' earthly ministry, doesn't it? Well, in this chapter we're going to look at this morning, we especially see the conflict that surrounded Jesus. If you have your Bibles, please turn to John chapter 18. John 18. And as you're turning there, let me give you a heads up on where we're going this morning. I want to do several things this morning. First, I want to highlight the conflict that surrounded Jesus by mentioning several people from this chapter who are described as being opposed to him. And then after that, I want us to talk about how Jesus responds to this conflict. And then I want to end by explaining why Jesus responds the way that he does. First, let's focus upon the opposition to Jesus. Notice that this opposition, this rejection comes from several different places. First notice there was rejection 
from within. Rejection from within. We learn in this chapter that there were some who were extremely close to Jesus who rejected him. First notice Judas rejected Jesus. Judas rejected Jesus, didn't he? Judas was one of the original 12 disciples, and we learn here and elsewhere that he rejected Jesus. Look at John chapter 18, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So the text tells us here that after dinner in the upper room, Jesus and his disciples headed back to the place where they were staying, which was this garden, And in Matthew and Mark, they tell us that this garden is the Garden of Gethsemane. And they enter into this garden, but one of the disciples is not with them. Who was that? Judas. That's right. Remember back in John 13, he left the upper room, and though the other disciples did not know it at the time, he left them to go and betray Jesus. And notice how Judas betrays Jesus. We're told that he goes to the Jewish religious leaders and he provides them with inside information to the whereabouts of Jesus. That's how he betrays him. See, the Jewish religious leaders had wanted to arrest Jesus for some time, but they had a tough time doing so because people had mixed feelings when it came to Jesus. There were some who loved and believed and followed him. You had some who were indifferent toward him, and you had others who despised and rejected him, and the Jewish religious leaders fell into the third camp. But they were reluctant about arresting Jesus for fear that the people would riot. So they had to wait for the opportune time to arrest him to avoid a major disturbance. Well, Judas gives them that that opportunity by telling them the whereabouts of Jesus He tells them where Jesus and his disciples often met after dark, and he even leads them to him. And we're told that Judas does this for 30 pieces of silver, which I heard recently was about a third of the average annual salary. So for this price, Judas betrays Jesus, and he leads these wicked men to him by night. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment, okay? Think about this. Though Judas is often portrayed in a negative way by the authors of the New Testament, and when you see portraits of him, he's often, you know, off in the shadows with this sinister look on his face. Each of these perspectives are given in hindsight, looking back after the fact. Listen, at this time, no one suspected Judas of anything. They really didn't. When Jesus first mentions his betrayal, the disciples are shocked. Nobody at the time thought, well, I know who it's going to be. It's going to be Judas over there sitting in the corner in the shadows by himself. No. Nobody thought that at the time. 
Judas was a disciple of Jesus. He was right by his side every step of the way for three years. He was committed to. He left his homeland to follow Jesus. In John 6, when Jesus' teachings got real tough, remember, people left by the thousands, but guess who stayed? Not just Peter, not just John, but Judas. Judas stayed. He had been with Christ and his disciples through thick and thin. Though there is no way I can know this for sure, my guess is if we could go back and peek in on the disciples at first glance, you would not be able to pick Judas out of the crowd. He was right by Jesus' side, just like the rest. He was a chosen disciple of Jesus who walked with them and talked with them and ate with them, and he also taught and performed miracles with the other disciples. Yet we see here in John 18 that Judas turned on Jesus, and he rejected him in the hours leading up to Jesus' arrest. And we also learn elsewhere in the scriptures that his heart was not right, right, for a while. But at the time, the disciples didn't have a clue. They didn't suspect Judas of anything, but he turned on Jesus. But he was not the only disciple to turn on Jesus, to turn away from him and reject him. Notice Peter rejected Jesus as well. Look at chapter 18. Verse 17. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Look down at verse 25. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, so they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose, Peter, whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with them? Peter again denied it, and at once the rooster crowed. So right after Jesus' arrest, notice here that Peter denies knowing him, not once, not twice, but three times. And remember, Jesus said this would happen, didn't he? It's exactly what he said. Remember in John 13, Jesus tells Peter that he will deny him three times before the rooster crows, and that's exactly what happens. It's exactly what happened. Now, why does Peter do this? Why does he deny knowing Jesus? Why does he reject him? Well, remember we explained why Judas did it. Remember, Judas rejected Jesus partly for money, but also because he had a spiritual problem as well in that he was given over to the works of the evil one, the devil. But why does Peter respond in this way? I believe it was probably out of fear more than anything else. Peter had a problem with letting his emotions get the best of him, didn't he? And at times... This caused him to act rather impulsively. So I believe Peter, out of fear here, denies knowing Jesus and being associated with him. So here we have Peter, one of the inner three, the rock, a disciple very close to Jesus, a disciple who saw 
Christ transfigured, a disciple whose God-given confession laid the foundation for the early church, a disciple who is later used by God in a mighty way to make a great impact for God's kingdom. Peter, out of fear, rejects Jesus by denying him. So at the beginning of this chapter, we learn about this rejection from within. We have two disciples who reject Jesus in his final hours. One is Judas and the other is Peter, but there's a key difference between these two individuals, isn't there? We learn later in the story that Peter eventually returns to Jesus and is restored, but Judas is not. Judas remains in his rejection and in a state of unrepentant rebellion, and this leads to his destruction. Now, some have made radical claims that Judas was repentant, And he was eventually saved. He was saved shortly after this. Some argue this. But I believe that God in his word teaches the exact opposite. You see, Judas, when mentioned, is never mentioned in a positive light, is he? And we're even told that it would have been better had Judas never been born. Now, let me ask you this. If his betrayal, which sent Christ to the cross which accomplished salvation, led to Judas's salvation, then why would that be said of him? That it would have been better had he never been born if he was saved through his betrayal. Now, you don't hear that kind of language used about Peter, do you? Who rejected Christ. Or about Paul, who for a time rejected Christ and, and persecuted Christians. And the reason why is because they repented and were restored to God through Christ. Not true of Judas. And when looking at these two disciples, the point of application here is, is very clear, isn't it? It's really simple. When looking at these two disciples, we learn that we're not to be a Judas. We are not to be a Judas. You see, the truth is, we all have rejected Christ. We're told in the scripture that in sin we are conceived. And we're told in Isaiah that we all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. We all have rejected Jesus. We come into this world sinners condemned unclean. And scripture is clear that without Christ we will remain enemies of God. But scripture also tells us that we, like Peter, can be forgiven. We, like Peter, can be restored. So I want to encourage you this morning, if you're here this morning in a state of unrepentant rebellion, if up to this point in your life you have yet to turn over the reins of your life to Christ, listen, it's not too late to be a Peter. It's not too late to turn from your sins and be forgiven, and move from darkness to light, from death to life. So again, in this chapter, we see rejection from within. We see rejection from two of Christ's own disciples, Peter and Judas. But not only that, there was also rejection from outside. Notice the religious leaders rejected Jesus. Now this group, unlike Jesus' disciples, they did not betray Jesus and turn away from him toward the end of his life. They had been opposed to him and his earthly ministry from the beginning. They had been opposed to Jesus early on. 
And they decided long ago that they were wanting to get rid of him. Why? Well, flip back in John to John chapter 5. John chapter 5, look at verse 18. And keep in mind, this is early on. John tells us in John chapter 5, verse 18, look at this. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Notice that John says here early on in his gospel that the Jewish religious leaders were seeking to kill Jesus. You know, sometimes we think that this opposition toward Jesus just came toward the end of the story. But in John's gospel, we learn that this was the plan from early on. And notice why they're plotting to kill him. Back in verse 5, back in chapter 5. Not just because he broke their laws and went against some of their traditions, though he did, and that didn't make them happy. But what angered them more than anything else was the claims that Jesus made. We're told in John 5 that they wanted to kill him because he was calling God his own father and he was making himself equal with God. Jesus claimed to be God. And they did not believe him to be, so they viewed these claims as blasphemous and sought to kill him. But at that time, we talked about earlier, they had not the opportunity. Again, like I said earlier, Jesus had some strong supporters in John chapter 5 and 6, and we learn for a time that he was very popular. So the Jewish religious leaders, they had to wait for their opportune time to arrest him. And with the help of Judas, they eventually get that opportunity. Judas leads them by night to this private place where Jesus was, and notice what happens Chapter 18, beginning in verse 12. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Notice in verse 12 it says, A band of soldiers came after Jesus. Now, many commentaries believe there could have been as many as 200 going to arrest Jesus. So picture this. You got 200 guys looking for Jesus, and they're armed and ready to arrest him. Notice also in verse 12 that you have these Jewish officers who are the, uh, the ones behind this instigating this. And notice here that they arrest Jesus, they take him by force, and they take him first to Annas and then to Caiaphas. Now in John's gospel is the only time, he's the only gospel writer who mentions that Jesus first went to Annas. And many believe Annas was a former high priest, so Annas was not the current priest at the time. He was a former high priest whose judgment was probably looked to and respected and trusted by the Jewish religious leaders. So they sent him first to Annas, and then he passes Jesus off to his son-in-law, Caiaphas. And notice in verse 14 that Jesus doesn't get a fair shake, does he? He doesn't get a fair trial. He was not tried fairly. The verdict was already in. Notice at the end of verse 14, Caiaphas advised others that this trial would be expedient and that Jesus was going to be put to death. 
So they had their mind made up, didn't they? Before arresting him that he was going to be put down, that he was going to be put to death. They finally had Jesus in their grasp. They had him right where they wanted him. They weren't going to take the chance of losing him, which is why they arrest him in private and they try him throughout the night with their minds made up. So the trial was just a charade. It was just a sham. Their minds were made up. There was no chance of Jesus being found innocent and being let go. The decision was already made before he was arrested that he was going to be killed. But there's a problem. Caiaphas... And the Jewish authorities do not have the authority to exercise capital punishment. They don't have the authority under Roman law to put Jesus to death, so they have to appeal to someone who can, someone who has that authority. And who is that person? It's Pilate, the Roman governor of Judea. So they send him to Pilate. Because he is the one who can get the job done. He is the one who has the authority to sentence Jesus to death. Look at verse 31. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. So notice here, Pilate doesn't want to have anything to do with this situation, does he? He doesn't want to have anything to do with Jesus. He says, You deal with him. You judge him by your own law. But notice the response of the Jews. They said to him, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. See, they're already wanting to put him down. And they've been tried by Pilate yet. Their minds are made up. So Pilate questions him, and he finds no fault in him. Look at verse 38. After questioning Jesus, Pilate went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. So after questioning Jesus, Pilate says, I don't find anything wrong with him. I find no guilt in him. He's definitely not deserving of death. But instead of completely overruling the Jews and enforcing them to release Jesus, Pilate, the politician, decides, I'm going to use their own customs against them to force them to release Jesus. In this day, there was a tradition that they could pardon someone around the time of Passover. And Pilate thought it was a no-brainer. They're going to let Jesus go. But boy, was he ever wrong. To his surprise, they pushed for the release of a hardened criminal named Barabbas. So get this. This is how opposed the Jewish religious leaders are to Jesus. Instead of letting him go, they give pardon to a notorious and hardened criminal. And though this seemed to shock Pilate, doesn't shock us, does it? Because like we said at the beginning, these guys weren't like Judas and Peter and turned on Jesus late in his ministry, they were opposed to him throughout his earthly ministry. And guess what? Not a lot has changed, has it? Ever since this time, there has been opposition to Christ and to his people. And that opposition at times can be severe, can it? And it continues to this very day. And again, believers, this shouldn't surprise us, should it? Jesus told us that this was going to happen. He told us that there was going to be opposition. 
He told them he was going to face opposition and he, and he told them that this opposition would eventually be directed toward his, toward his followers. He says in John 15, verse 19, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. It would embrace you. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So you see right there, Jesus prepared his disciples and us for opposition. Notice also that Pilate rejected Jesus. Talked about this just a moment ago. He was the Roman governor of Judea and was another person in the story who stands in opposition of Jesus. And some of you might argue with this and say, well, Pilate didn't really reject Jesus. He didn't find any fault in him. Tried to get the Jews to release him. Though that may be true, get this. Pilate was eventually persuaded by the Jews to crucify Christ. Though he was not adamantly opposed to Christ like the Jewish religious leaders of the day, Pilate's problem was he was indifferent toward Jesus. Look at his comments again in verse 31. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. See, Pilate's no champion of Jesus. He says, I don't want to be bothered by this. You guys judge him. You deal with him, you see. He was indifferent. That attitude of indifference is what led him to send Christ away to be crucified. Now granted, Pilate did mention, I find no fault in him and tried to get the Jews to release him, but they refused. So you remember his response. First he had him flogged. He had him beaten badly. He had a crown of thorns put on his head and he dressed him up in a purple robe and he had him mocked and beaten further thinking this would satisfy the bloodthirsty crowd. But when it, he sees that it doesn't and the crowd threatens Pilate's rule by saying in John 19, 12, if you release this man, you're not a friend of Caesar because Jesus claims to be the king, Pilate, and you know there's no king but Caesar. Pilate eventually gives in and he washes his hands of the situation. He says, I'm washing my hands of this man's blood. His blood is on your hands. You see, Pilate thought that he was not being opposed to Jesus by being indifferent toward him. And that made him, he believed, innocent in this situation. But the truth is, listen, he's one of the main reasons Jesus goes to the cross. For Jesus to be put to death, Pilate had to sign off on it. So Pilate is one of the ones ultimately responsible for Jesus' execution. Even though he washes his hands of the situation, even though he felt as if he was innocent, Jesus' blood is on Pilate's hands. In the old Apostles' Creed, you remember what it says? It says, Jesus suffered under who? Under Pontius Pilate. So Pilate, though indifferent, is responsible. Jesus' blood is on his hands. Pilate's feelings of indifference toward Christ reflects the attitude of many in our world today, doesn't it? Today there are many who think, I got no problem with Jesus. Though I'm not following him, I'm not opposed to him, nor am I opposed to others who follow him. I'm indifferent toward him. 
This is you. I want you to get this. A key truth we learn all throughout the scriptures, and especially in Pilate's case, is that indifference toward Jesus is the same as being opposed to him. Indifference is the same as opposition in God's eyes. Listen, there are certain things that we just can't be indifferent about, folks. And the person and work of Christ is one of those things. The claims he makes are just too radical. He claims to be the Son of God. He claims to be the Savior of the world. He claims to be the only one and the only way through which we can get to God. You can't come away from a guy like that and say, whatever, I'm indifferent. Remember the old Doobie Brothers song, Jesus is Just All Right? Remember that song? Can't have that kind of response when it comes to Jesus. His life and his teachings are just too extreme, too radical to leave one in a state of indifference. So I want to encourage you this morning, if you're neutral when it comes to Jesus, if you say, you know, I'm not opposed to him, but I'm not on board with him, I'm indifferent, Jesus is just all right. I urge you to consider the claims that Jesus made about himself and consider the work that we're told that he accomplished in this book and know that Jesus himself said those who are neutral toward him are opposed to him. The scriptures are clear that the Lord is just as opposed to people who are indifferent toward him as he is to people who are opposed to him. Jesus said, if you're not with me, you're what? You're against me. You're against me. So I want to encourage you this morning, don't be a pilot. Don't remain indifferent. Side with Christ. Don't stand against him by remaining indifferent and neutral toward him, but instead place your trust and faith in him and in him alone for your salvation. So we've looked at two types of opposition that Jesus faced. He faced opposition from within, from those closest to him. Judas betrayed him. Peter denied him. You also have opposition from outside. You have the Jewish religious leaders who are adamantly and passionately opposed to Jesus. And you have Pilate who is indifferent toward him, which we just said is the same as being opposed to him. So we have discussed this opposition toward Jesus. Now let's ask this question. How does Jesus respond to this opposition? How does he respond to this rejection There are several things here. First, notice Jesus embraces his rejection. Jesus knew what was coming, didn't he? He knew Judas had betrayed him. He knew that Peter was going to deny him. He knew the Jewish religious leaders were plotting to kill him, and he knew that Pilate was going to convict him and send him to the cross. Yet he willingly goes to the place where his arrest will take place. He doesn't withdraw back to Galilee or elsewhere, but he embraces this rejection, and he is taken away willingly. Not only that, he also responds to this rejection by standing by his confession. Jesus stands by his confession. Look at John 18, verses 4 through 6. Uh, Here Judas has uh, led this mob to arrest Jesus. And notice what Jesus does. Then Jesus 
knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them when Jesus said, I am he. They drew back and fell to the ground. So notice here, something interesting. You probably read through that a ton of times, but I want to draw your attention to Jesus' statement, I am he. That phrase, I am, is very, very important. It's from the Greek, ego, I, me. I am. This is a divine claim that Jesus is making here. You remember in the Old Testament when, when Moses had this encounter with God and he said, if they ask who sent me, who do I say? And God says, you tell them I am sent you. And then remember Jesus early on in his earthly ministry said, before Abraham was, I am. And what did the Jews do? They picked up stones getting ready to stone him because they knew what he was claiming. And Jesus is making this claim here, which is why I believe the, the crowd responds the way that it does. They're knocked back by this statement. They're saying, where's Jesus? And he basically responds with, I, God, am here. I mean, this is the reason they came to arrest him. And notice, Jesus stands strong here by his confession. So he accepts his rejection. He stands by his confession. Third, notice Jesus provides his disciples with protection. Notice in the midst of this rejection, Jesus is concerned for his disciples. He puts them before himself and he provides them with protection. Look at verses 7 through 9. So he asks them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you, I am. There it is again. Ego I me. I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. So notice here. Jesus is in the driver's seat, isn't he? He is. These guys aren't ultimately responsible for his fate because Jesus is telling them what to do, and they're listening. God's behind this, and Jesus is willingly going to the cross, and he says, but let these men go. And what do they do? They let them go. So he provides his disciples with protection. Number four, Jesus does not respond with retaliation. When Peter cuts off Malchus's ear, Jesus heals the man, as we learn in Luke, and then rebukes Peter. So he doesn't respond with retaliation. But he willingly submits to this rejection once again. He willingly submits to it, which brings us to our final question, a very important question, why? Why does Jesus respond in this way? Why does he embrace this rejection and go willingly to the cross? Well, we find the answer in verse 11. Look at verse 11. Look at it with me. Jesus says to Peter, Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Notice here that Jesus makes mention of the fact that the Father has given him a cup to drink. And this picture of drinking from this cup here is a metaphor for death, and it's also a picture of God's wrath. So notice here, Jesus is saying, the Father has given me this cup to drink. The Father is ultimately the one behind this. He is the one who is sending me, Jesus, to the cross. 
He is the one who is going to punish me on your behalf. Remember I said earlier there was rejection from within and rejection from outside, but notice here you also have rejection from above. We learn here and elsewhere that the father also rejects the son for a time, doesn't he? God the Father is the one who ultimately sends Christ to the cross. God the Father is the one who gives him this cup to drink. God the Father is the one who makes him who knew no sin be sin for us. The Father is the one who forsakes his son, which is why Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We don't just learn this from the Gospels, do we? This was his plan from the beginning. In Isaiah chapter 53, verse 10, we're told that it pleased God. It was God's will to crush his son. Why? So that we could be accepted. If you don't hear anything else, hear this. God rejected his son for a time so that he would not have to reject us for all eternity. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. Though all we like sheep have gone astray, though though every one of us, without exception, have rejected God, he responded by rejecting his son for a time so that he could accept us forever. That's the gospel. Today, if you have not, you can be accepted. You can experience acceptance from God if you would repent of your sin of rejection and if you would trust in Christ alone for your salvation. If you've never made this decision, I pray you would this morning. Would you pray with me?